Wonder is not kid stuff. Wonder is radical grown-up stuff. I would like to use the word grown-up wonder. I have a seven-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old daughter, so I see their experience of wonder, and it's different from ours. And I can say this too. I'm more aware of the fleeting nature of life than they are, and I'm more aware of mortality than they are. And that actually heightens my experience of wonder. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am just delighted to welcome Jeffrey Davis to the My Fourth Act podcast. I think of Jeffrey as a seeker and explorer. Jeffrey works with innovators, professionals, writers, scientists, and social psychologists. And this work offers him leading insights into the creative process. He is the founder of Tracking Wonder Consultancy, where he nurtures individual and organizational experiences of wonder. Jeffrey just released his marvelous book, aptly called Tracking Wonder, that illuminates the many facets of wonder for us, the reader. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Well, I can't wait to learn more about your understanding of wonder, your experience of wonder. And for many of us, this actually harks back to our childhood and what child life was like for us or not. So I'm very curious, when you were a child, what was your sense of who you wanted to be when you grow up? (laughs) Well, uh, I love that question because I ask a variation of that question to a lot of the innovators I I work with Uh in interview. But I will maybe reframe the question because I wasn't so forward thinking. Uh Um, when I was a a child. And by the time I was a teenager, I was curiously more reflective as I was anxious about moving forward. So, But they all both revolved around the desire to create worlds and to Mm -hmm. imagine worlds. And that came early on when I read Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are. Uh, Uh, It completely cracked open my imagination and this desire to create other worlds within this world. So that led to writing short stories, typing them out of my father's typewriter, et cetera. By the time I was a teenager, I was conscious of the fact that I might be losing my imagination, which actually led me into college and in grad school to pursue poetics, philosophy, psychology, everything that all my friends in business and law and pre-med thought was just utterly impractical. But I'm glad I made those choices. (laughs) You use this wonderful grown-up phrase, creating worlds. And I love that. But when you were a young boy or teenager, did you have a sense that you were consciously creating worlds or is this more of a lens that you put on it in hindsight? Definitely the lens I put on on hindsight. Actually, every morning, I actually remember that toe-headed boy roaming the woods and creating stories. I remember every morning and write down like three adjectives about him, one which was imaginative. 
But it wasn't really until I was 19 that I can still remember writing down in a notebook, I will become a writer. So that was maybe the first inclination of how that might take shape, but I was only admitting it to myself at the time. Since you're already giving us wonderful clues about writing and writing things down, how would you connect the act of writing to both imagination and the creation of worlds? Well, so I love that question too, because there are lots of misconceptions people have about writing or let's say creating a world on the page. So I draft to discover, and I always encourage people to draft to discover, which means that very active writing itself helps us think on the page and helps us imagine on the page. I may get an inkling of a an idea, or sometimes, honestly, it's looking out early in the morning across the pond in our backyard and seeing the glimmers of the sunrise. And I start to just get like a glimmer of a feeling, like a complex of emotions. Mm -hmm. And I'll just write down and kind of seemingly random words, whatever that emotion is in tandem with the image and see where that takes me. That's how books sometimes evolve. So the misconception is to think, oh, I need to have the idea all in my head and then I'll write it down. I need to have the book all perfectly conceived and then I'll write it. It doesn't work that way. To me, what you just described is such a wonderful metaphor, not just the creation of books, but the creation of life. You know, Mm -hmm. as, as a fellow writer, the idea that I have to start with a book outline is insanity to me, right? Because I shortcut the discovery and the exploration just as I can't stand the notion of five and 10 year goals. <laughs> and <laughs> Which in this climate are completely ridiculous. <laughs> I didn't mean I, to interrupt, but I was just thinking how ridiculous it feels sometimes to create 10 year goals in this world right now. Yeah, <laughs> it really does. What I glimpsed from your journey in life that got you to tracking wonder, both the work you do and the book you wrote is, and I mean, this is a high compliment. It, it looks a little eclectic. It doesn't look traditionally linear. I want to just mention two things that jumped out to me that, that I want to share with our listeners. And I'd love for you to speak with them as you wish. One, you created something called the Walden Institute. That sounds really cool. And I like, and when you were, I believe, 25, I'd love for you to talk to us about that. And We already know your love of writing and you've worked for a while as a book coach, book mentor, probably more, and I don't want to mislabel you, but what drew you to the Walden Institute and book coaching? And if you maybe give us a glimpse of some moments where you go, wow, this this was really cool stuff I was doing. Yeah. So the Walden Institute comes out obviously from the book by Henry David Thoreau, Walden, which for those listeners who, who don't know, is sort of like our first American life designer. (laughs) So that book was introduced to me as an undergraduate at UT Austin. And it really woke me up to see, oh, maybe there are some different ways to live than I saw around me. So another professor and I, when I was 25, co-founded the Walden Institute, which was devoted to providing courses and learning experiences, particularly around the Western philosophical traditions, as well as some of the Eastern philosophical traditions. And at that time in the late 80s, 
we were committed to studying human potential through the lens of existential psychologists like Rollo May, Eric Fromm, and Abraham Maslow. So this predates positive psychology that we're familiar with, say, from the past 15 years. So yeah, that also, when I was about 20, just to go back a little bit, so I was growing up, uh, so I was in college in the 80s. Everyone around me is focused on success, sort of defined in those times in America in the 1980s. And for whatever reasons, I was questioning that but quietly and in my notebooks. And I would go off to a, a horizon of Mount Bunnell, which is the largest highest point in Austin. And I was writing in my notebooks. I'd look back at them to corroborate it, questioning the idea of success versus meaning. And what I wanted was meaning. And I just, for whatever reasons, I don't know why, had the instincts to make those decisions accordingly. I had two parents who loved me unconditionally and said, whatever makes you happy. (laughs) So the Walden Institute comes out of that and was offering courses outside of a formal institution to other adults who wanted to pursue, say, meaning through the lens of philosophy, psychology, and even literature. So yeah, I don't work as a book coach per se now. I work as a teen culture consultant, a business Mm -hmm. advisor, and even a thought leader strategist, but there's an ongoing thread really in all of my work, which is to pursue work that is meaningful and impactful. And there was a second part of your question, like what part of this work just like indicated to me, like, oh, I'm on to something. What was that second part? Well, I, I'm curious to me, there are moments in life giving you both options right now, moments where we go, wow, what just happened? This is why I'm doing this. The, the, the little moments where the purpose becomes alive and we go, yeah, this is why I do this. But there are also the moments where, why the heck am I doing this? Just, it feels horrible. So you can choose, take us to one of these polls just to give us a sense of what this looks like in action. Yeah, yeah. Well, I will fast forward a little bit, really, when I started, and we can talk more about, about in between being in my 20s, when I was teaching, writing, overworking at the expense of everything while still pursuing a meaningful life. But I fast forward maybe several years ago when I was doing this work more specific to wonder and I was leading a workshop for about 90 entrepreneurs from around the world in methods of bringing more wonder to work. And afterward, this IT expert, uh, he was probably in his 30s, he came up to me and he asked if we could speak privately. He was a first-generation American. Uh, and I mentioned that because he said his father just really started pushing him so hard by the time he was nine years old to just keep achieving because this is what, you know, this is what we're here for in this country. So this young man just he was crying to me because he felt like he had forgotten his capacity to wonder and what we would call his innate genius since he was nine. And we stayed in touch after then. I gave him some perspective. He stayed in touch with me. He said, you know, he started to see himself differently. He started to see his family and the importance of his relationships differently. And he started to put his job in its sort of right scale. And he, he gives me updates. We actually, this was several years ago. and We just spoke a couple of months ago. And it was just reminding me of how seminal of a moment that was for him 
But to answer your question, it was a seminal moment for me because I saw the power of this work. You know, it's so hard to measure. And that those moments, I have to say, are always the moments I'm identifying as how is this work making a real genuine difference in people's lives? So, yeah. As you were telling this moment, I have many of those of my own and, and I'm inviting our listeners to think of moments in their own life where they felt, oh, this is where I am making a difference and it comes from a place of deep meaning for me. Since you mentioned Wonder and Tracking Wonder, that's the name of your business. That's the name of this marvelous new book. I, I want to deconstruct this a little bit. And when I heard the word wonder and you wrote about it, I immediately had my own associations with it. And we'll talk a little later about the six facets of wonder that you that you write about, but without breaking it down that much. What does wonder mean to Jeffrey Davis? Yeah, that's that is a multifaceted question. <laughs> <laughs> because wonder is so hard to pin down. Rene Descartes in 1649, his last book where it was on emotions or le passion, as they were called then, he called wonder the first of all emotions, which has been corroborated by a number of psychologists now to say that it's the emotion we're born with. We're born sort of wide-eyed with wonder, regardless of circumstances. It's very subtle. So I'm going to mention this just because it's been hard for psychologists to quote measure according to traditional measuring instruments, which means there's only been a fairly recent science of wonder in the past eight or so years. So I say this because it's been hard to define also. So I'll just give a kind of clear language definition of it now. It, it is when I sometimes feel astonished, but I don't want to raise the bar too high for the listeners. So I'm going to give a clear definition so that your listeners might yeah. say, oh, maybe wonder is more available than I was thinking. Maybe it's more pervasive than I realize. Wonder is a state of heightened awareness brought on by something unexpected Mm -hmm. that either delights us or disorients us or both. It could be suddenly a bald eagle landing in your front yard on a tree. It completely surprises you. It could be the disorienting part how many of us have felt in the past two years when your sense of what's real and true gets turned inside and out. It can come in moments of great adversity actually as well. So what's, what's really remarkable now, I've been studying this deliberately for over 15 years, but the science, the wisdom traditions and the living laboratory of my life and the people I work with is that these moments of wonder that we can actually track momentarily dissolve our biased perceptions so we can see again what's real and true and what's beautiful what's possible this happens with our perceptions of ourselves of each other and of our own own circumstances and our own sense of what's real and possible you just laid a whole bunch of stuff on me jeffrey davis (laughs) I sure did. (laughs) So first thing was I appreciated your definition because I found it to be highly functional and accessible, which was great for something that you yourself call a little slippery and elusive. But this thought I had, and I'm going to test this with you, you said psychologists have a hard time sort of measuring it, making sense of it, even though it's the original emotion. Is it hard to 
measure it and describe it because we culturally have continuously killed the experiences of wonder to the point where where we can't measure it, can't see it or feel it enough? So those are actually two different points. And I just, I'm glad you're kind of thinking out loud with me. These Mm -hmm. kinds of conversations I love to have. So part of what makes it difficult to measure for quite some time, even Darwin was measuring emotions according to their physiological response they create in us. And a lot of psychologists like Dr. Keltner at UC Berkeley Mm-hmm. whom Pixar films consults for the science of all, which I love that job. I yeah. wish I had that job. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, he and other psychologists often study emotions according to what sort of facial expressions yeah. they might elicit in us. So with wonder, like when we say positive psychology, we're not talking about good emotions. Right. We say positive because they're emotions that elicit a response toward the stimulus. So for instance, we would say love attracts, right? Whereas negative emotions like fear, we would say fear repels. Wonder can hold us in a state of pausing and receiving Mm -hmm. and appreciating. Mm -hmm. Some studies, just to further answer your question out of Arizona University, demonstrate these moments of wonder pause the fight or flight response. Yeah. So they're that subtle physiologically. That's why they've been in part difficult to yeah. measure. But the whole question of cultural bias, there's another line of question. <laughs> well, let's go down that line because in your book, you you begin by describing that we have biases against wonder and the experience of wonder. Can you give us examples of what those biases are look like and maybe what is driving those biases? Absolutely. This is certainly many of us have had a series of awakenings the past couple of years, I think, recognizing kind of the water in which we swim culturally and certain, you know, our assumptions about work and the workplace certainly have been challenged. Yeah. Right. And this is tied tied to this. So, you know, I've traced part of this bias even back to the Protestant work ethic, uh, the Scottish Irish culture of which I've been a part as well, where even in the Scottish language around the 1800s, there was a word called uh, for a certain disease called the wonders. <laughs> you had the wonders if you're kind of in a stupor and gazing. And so I just imagine, you know, some boy out in the field looking up at the clouds and somebody saying, oh, that boy, he's got a case of the wonders. He'll never amount to anything, you know? So in our more current culture, our work culture, hyperproductivity, near toxic productivity. Generally speaking, a lot of people also don't value what they can't measure. And so it's hard to value wonder. And if you're looking at your employees and somebody's gazing up at the clouds, you would say that person's being unproductive, (laughs) perhaps, when actually that person may be imagining a beautiful way to completely change the workplace, right? This gets, this really gets, very tricky. And it does, as I've been looking back more into the history of our notions of work, we can look back to some of our earliest organizational consultants at the turn of the 20th century who were basically examining the workforce, right? This is coming in the industrial era, who were looking at all the employees and workers and saying, oh, you know, 
we can identify just how lazy and unproductive they are, we need to emphasize control, speed, and efficiency. Fast forward over 100 years later, we're, we're still kind of swimming in those waters. But I have to say, this book had come out five years ago, even 10 years ago, maybe we wouldn't have been as ready for it as we might be now. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. Speaking of being ready for more wonder, many of our listeners are have worked hard, have been successful. They don't want more traditional success, but they maybe want more sweetness. You know, and I'm thinking of this, this longing perhaps to, well, life was just simpler when I was a child and life was easier. And I, I think of this phrase to look at the world with childlike wonder, mm. which is almost a the cultural cliche. What would you say to somebody who goes, gosh, I want to go back to those days when I could pause more, I could notice more. And the cynic could say, well, you've had a lot of bad experiences between now and then, and it'll never look that way again. Just play with that notion for a moment, if you would. Oh yeah, I will. And this, we may go back to some of the cultural biases too, because even if, you know, some of the founders and entrepreneurs, self-employed that I've worked with, have just inherited all of the overworking biases. I think it's really hard for people who work for themselves not to be their own worst boss, to turn it off, right? To turn off the work. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. You also did hit on something else culturally, which is, understandably, we want to value competency and core, let's say, knowledge within our field and industry, but not at the expense of becoming rigid in our thinking or cynical in our thinking. And one key cognitive block is a sort of default cynicism about the world or about other human beings. I Personally, I think it's really easy to be cynical. <laughs> so for the listeners, right, who say, yeah, I just, you know, I would like to pause and maybe, you know, experience a little bit more delight and wonder, but, you know, maybe it's too late for me. So let me unpack this a little bit. Yeah. Wonder is not kid stuff. Wonder is radical grown-up stuff. I would like to use the word grown-up wonder. I have a seven-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old daughter. So I see their experience of wonder and it's different from ours. And I can say this too, I'm more aware of the fleeting nature of life than they are. And I'm more aware of mortality than they are. And that actually heightens my experience of wonder. It actually helps me be even more present to the moment with them or with you, with other human beings that 
understandably they don't they have a wide-eyed wonder and and we have a more grown-up wonder so for your listeners i would ask them to even ask themselves a question similar to what you asked me at the beginning which is to remember a time maybe when they were seven or eight nine or ten years old when they felt really alive and free to be uniquely themselves without regard for reward or recognition and really spend time remembering what we would call kind of a young genius and really acknowledge who they were in those moments, those, those memories, and even write down some of those traits and potentially entertain that that sort of force of character is still alive in them if they will remember and recognize it. Now, this can sound like a little inner child exercise, but it's not. It's That's actually, not what you mean. I understand. Yeah, I have lawyers and academics who do this work and they keep this sort of young genius alive and it really changes their outlook and changes who they're bringing to work with them each day, so to speak, or, or to their life with them. So yeah, I really encourage that. And, just, and then just like one other thing is to recognize whoever you're working with or living with also has that sort of unique genius force of character. So I hope that helps you unpack that a little. I want to just hold on to the difference between what I call wide-eyed innocence, inner child, and your phrase, young genius, which is, I believe, a more powerful phrase and the ability to reconnect with that takes it beyond a yearning to forget our troubles, you know? <laughs> and it has, so has more, so. it has so much more meat to it potentially, right? So much so, and that sort of working premise of this whole body of work and of the book too, and that everybody I work with knows I say this, every big idea begets a series of challenges. Yeah. Every, every bold idea begets a series of challenges. The difference is how are you going to face or finesse those challenges? Yeah. Can you bring your young genius qualities forward? And another kind of seminal moment for me for this work was in the early stages of the lockdown the pandemic. I lead annual inner circle masterminds. And this one group, seven professionals, those early months, they said, oh, you've been preparing us for this. Like they had their share of unbidden surprises and suffering at all different levels, but they felt prepared. They're like, oh, here's another set of challenges, right? So this is not about escaping reality. It's about all the different ways we can actually see reality and finesse it. Now, in, in your book, Tracking Wonder, you, you do a wonderful job of taking this slippery, elusive notion and experience of wonder, and you put some more language to it. You, you, use, you describe six different facets, and the writer on you put some juicy language on it, which the fellow writer in me appreciated. Would you briefly give us an overview of what the six facets are in a brief description as you understand it? Sure. So, and this did not come at the beginning of the body of research, but only in distilling it and saying, how can I give people an accessible shared language of wonder and possibility? Yes. So the six facets, you think of wonder as a multifaceted gem, multi-sided gem. Um, and I think of them in pairs. So three pairs of facets. First pair is openness and curiosity. Openness is sort of the wide sky facet. It is this wide eyed, 
wonder and openness to possibility. It's where we foster what I would call an intelligent naivete that all of the fulfilled innovators I've worked with and interviewed and studied must maintain in the face of naysayers, sometimes with their ideas or with their fourth act in this case. You've got an idea for your fourth act, you have to keep radically open. The second is curiosity. It's what I call the rebel facet. It's where we question the status quo way of doing things. It's where we learn by doing and we experiment, where we get rushes of dopamine to keep going for the sake of going and pursuing new discoveries. Those two facets together can really help us approach life more creatively and less reactively. The second pair of facets are usually what people do not associate with wonder. These facets are bewilderment and hope. Bewilderment is the deep woods facet. This is the disorienting facet of wonder. This is when our sense of who we are might be radically challenged and decentered, or we're in the middle of a project or idea and we don't know if we're ever going to get out of it. This is where we fertilize confusion instead of fight or flee from it. Hope is the rainbow facet. It is not wishful thinking. It's a very proactive way of moving ahead creatively, sometimes intuitively, even amidst crises or adversity. The third set, uh, third pair of facets are connection and admiration. And for our times, I would suggest these may be the two most important because these are the relational and social dimensions of wonder. Connection is the flock facet. This speaks to our Longing to belong, it speaks to our yearning to sync up with one another in collaboration and other modes of support. Admiration is what I call the mirror facet. The root of the word admiration means wonder, and it's where we get the word mirror. But it is where sometimes we have, we experience what I call a surprising love for someone's excellence and craft or character. A little different from envy. Definitely know the difference in how to shift envy even into admiration, but it's a really powerful facet to foster with the people you work with, the people you live with, and the people sometimes that you serve. Thank you for that beautiful overview. I, when you mentioned the bewilderment, which to me is where my mind goes, is, is wonder by creating helpful disruption you know, that takes us into new things. And my mind immediately went to, especially many fourth actors often say, well, part of my fourth act is I want to travel a lot more. And people say, I want to travel not to go to that five-star resort where I stay locked in, but I want to travel to be in different worlds where people live differently and possibly challenged to look at my life differently. Would that be an example of intentional bewilderment. I love that. Yeah. It's actually a great example of openness as well, which I recommend, Uh which is to go to new places, but also intentional bewilderment to deliberately disrupt your preconceptions of what's real and true. Yes. Bewilderment, sometimes it's not brought on so actively because we so many of us want to not be bewildered these days. But when we find ourselves in confusion, deep sort of high stakes confusion, I want to encourage listeners to normalize that state 
instead of pathologize that state of confusion and see it as a real opportunity for growth, if not breakthrough. For fourth actors, I think what you described is a great example of potential cultural or existential bewilderment. Put yourself in the place of difference and be open and curious. Yeah. You ended your description of the six facets with the word admiration. There were so many beautiful nuances to your understanding of it. And I'd like to kick that around some more if we can. Uh, because traditionally, I think it can mean, oh, I look up to somebody and gosh, they're so accomplished. There's so many doing so many great things. And the deeper yearning could be, I wish I could be like them. But I thought you had a lot of other nuances to it. Can you just embellish a little more your understanding of admiration and what we see in the other who we admire? I love this. Yes. So there are at least like, if you think of mirrors maybe moving in three different directions that I unpack in that chapter, typically when we think of admiration, we think of looking up to somebody, maybe a child looking up to an athlete we admire, like Michael Jordan or somebody that is one mode of admiration. So we look up to an exemplar, I call it in, in that chapter. It turns out that uh, according to one study of like over 700 creative people who've innovated in their fields, they do have those relationships with exemplars. That's important. What's important, let's just unpack this a little bit so we distinguish it from envy. Because many of us as grown-ups, are almost shy to admit that we admire somebody because then we feel like we're diminishing ourselves. So it's not blind veneration, but if you sense that you're envying somebody, I tell the story about envying one of my psychologist friends that I've known since 2010 through psychology today. Um, and he has three daughters. I have two. He's younger. He's buff. He's always showing off his biceps. I'm not buff. I watch him and he's out there having these great adventures with his daughters. You know, they're taking pilot lessons and jumping off cliffs and so forth. And there was this moment when I said, oh, I want to be a father like that. And it felt like envy. And then I unpacked the that, which is what I recommend in this chapter too. Like name the that when you feel envy or even when you feel admiration in an exemplar. For me, it was, oh, I want to give my two daughters experiences where they feel more courage and resilience and confidence but I'll do it in my way, not his way, right? So that helped me shift possible envy into proactive admiration, which has led to quite different experiences for my daughters and myself. The second nuance for admiration is how we might regard the people that we're serving. So when I work with teams and organizations, sometimes we look at a team's attitude toward their customers and clients. And sometimes it's not admiring. Sometimes the client, the customers are viewed as an inconvenience. And I'm like, hmm, let's shift this. And I, I worked with a, a major city planning department in British Columbia around this too, with certain citizenships they were serving. If you can shift your attitude toward the people you serve as potential everyday heroes, who really, they're struggling for change, they're wanting change in some form or fashion, if you can find what you can admire, literally admire about them, whether it's their character, their grit, their desire, that can shift the dynamic completely. The third is 
your own regard for yourself. And I don't mean self-esteem. I mean, genuinely naming the that in you that you admire, particular talent that sometimes is hard for us to see in ourselves, but to actually name it and own it. These are really, really important, undervalued facets of wonder. I feel like you just gave us some examples of the tracking part of wonder, which is, of course, your, you know, it's, which I interpret as it's not a lucky accident. You know, the more we track it, the more we notice, the more of it we intentionally make happen or allow to happen, right? So I want to, I want to take it to you now, Jeffrey, in your life, you, you've studied wonder, you've just written a wonderful book about it, you serve clients. In your own life, you talked about your two daughters. How does wonder show up in your life? Or how do you make space for more wonder? And how do you track it in your own life? Yeah. So, you know, early in the book, I say, you know, the aim is not to be wondrous all the time, which would be exhausting and maybe a little infuriating for the people you live with. But but it is the up the wonder ratio. And I'm heartened since the book's come out by how many people have shared even publicly as well as privately with me, how they're starting to recognize wonder everywhere. They've given it, gotten a new language for it. So for me personally, I literally, every morning, I have my own sort of beta notebook with certain prompts. One of them is to, is to actually literally remember my three young genius traits that I write down every morning, remember them. And then I look ahead to my day, like this moment right now, right. and imagine how I'm going to bring one or more of those traits forward, decides like recognizing those traits are still alive in me. There are a couple of other exercises in the morning too. So I, every morning I write down today, I'm curious about blank. I'm really like shifting the worry mind, which can be alive and kicking. If I happen to wake up at 4 a.m., <laughs> there's the worry mind instead of the wonder mind. So I deliberately check in. What am I curious about today? Like, let me just acknowledge that and write down some thoughts about that. And throughout the day, work days aren't always typical or the same, but I am very deliberate in shaping where my attention is. And I do try to designate certain wonder breaks if I have a full work day. That may be a walk outdoors for five to 10 minutes without any purpose other than to walk, which has profound benefits. It may be if my daughters happen to be home in the afternoon to check in with them and spend some time with them. So those warm connections are really important. And then in the evenings, I will aim to write down also in my notebook, one to three highlights of the day to really reflect on sometimes those small, they're often the small moments that are important to remember. So those are just a few of the ways, but yeah, I'm grateful that my research has led me to be quite adept at tracking wonder throughout the day. And this, even this conversation, I have to say the way you carry a conversation is genuinely for me, a moment of wonder because neither of us know exactly where it's going. We're both, at least I am getting little insights and it feels like a very present conversation. This is for me, a part of that facet of. I appreciated the notion of wonder breaks. And what I also heard from you is very simple habits that keep you connected to the experience of wonder. 
and I hadn't didn't think I would think about this, but as we were talking, I was thinking about we talked about positive psychology, Dr. Barbara Fredrickson and the notion of micro moments of love, which are moments of wonder with complete strangers. The moment I understood what that was, they started happening all around. And my awareness that, oh, this is what it is, and I can invite it in and be present created so many more, which is exquisite, right? I cite her research of Love 2.0 also in that chapter on connection and her work, Valerie Carr's work, are why I think that chapter on connection and admiration are so important for our times. It's actually literally walking through New York City or some other place full of strangers and recognizing, you know, the beauty in those strangers and just becoming aware of how some of our biases can just almost be in a fight or flight response without us realizing it among strangers. Yeah. And we have the capacity to trip that wiring and experience the moments of wonder right there. So yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Now, from your vantage point right now, as a mature grown-up and a father of two children and having done lots of research, if you could either speak to the young version of yourself and share some wisdom and guidance with him, not to change the course of his life, but if you wanted to be the, the benevolent wisdom whisperer, what would you want him to know based on what you know now about life? That's a great question. Um, because I do think of that toe-headed boy literally almost every morning, <laughs> as I said. But, you know, this is a really thoughtful question. I would, I would literally say you're okay just as you are. Others might see you as slow, but you move deeply, see the world differently. So keep imagining and keep creating great things are to come. Beautiful. And if you were to extend this wisdom to our listeners, so let's imagine our listener is maybe in their 50s or in their 60s. They've had a great life and they're going, gosh, I, I want to experience more wonder. I sometimes feel overwhelmed with life. You know, I'm dealing with some of the effects of aging, which don't always feel good. What kind of guidance would you share with them around the possibility of having more wonder? Yeah, thank you for that invitation. One is to acknowledge that young genius. I get that term from my study of Greek philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all three sort of early positive psychologists who use the word daemon in Greek, which translates to genius, the sort of innate force of character we're each uniquely born with, that if we keep remembering it, recognizing it, will keep leading us toward our best life. So I would say to your listeners to acknowledge perhaps that young genius that we have been talking about and, and literally spend some time writing down maybe three qualities that that young genius had that is still alive in you when you feel most alive and free to express yourself. But extend that conversation maybe with friends or loved ones. So lots of people have told me over the past few weeks that they've had conversations with their loved ones or friends to go around the table and share their young genius qualities. And then actually literally try to see that in the other, in the friend or loved one. Really powerful way to re-see one another and to yeah. be seen again anew. Similarly, though, many people in this sort of fourth act are overwhelmed with possibilities. And they may not 
lack attention deficit disorder, but as one of my former clients said, attention abundance disorder. They're curious about so many different things. They don't know which way to go. And certainly that has been the case for me in the past. And I would really encourage them to check in with what they really care about. What do you really care about? And then tie that to what you're curious about and want to pursue. And what you care about might help you filter out all of your many options and choices. The the Lakota people in the United States had a word called itompa, and it translates loosely to care, but it also translates to wonder, which makes me feel like that intimate connection of what we wonder about, we also will care about. What we care about, then we can get curious about and have a truly beautiful fourth act of possibility. What a wonderful ending to this conversation. I I just want to invite you to share. I'm sure our listeners want to go, so where do I find out more about Jeffrey Davis and the work he does? I'm sure people know where to find the book, but where would you send people who want to learn more about what you do? Sure. They can go to trackingwonder.com. They might be curious about our emerging Wonder at Work community that will be opening in 2022 might be curious about some of the organization work, although this audience may be <laughs> beyond that organization work, which is beautiful. They also may go to trackingwonder.com slash podcast bonus, where they can take a Wonder at Work assessment and download the first chapter of the book as well. Thank you for that. And just thank you for the gift of this conversation. It was a total pleasure for me. Me as well. Thank you for the art of a true conversation. <laughs> Bye for now. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.